Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. O God, a people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Would you shine on us, Lord, through your word. Help us to hear the voice crying in the wilderness, to hear the voice of John, to hear the voice of the word of God, your Son, saying, Repent ye, believe the gospel, prepare ye the way of the Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this is great. I would do this every Sunday. But to deny the rumor that I have heard already circulating, I did not do this. I didn't mess with the breakers or the circuits. God intended this. It just so happens that God and I want the same thing. Last week's sermon turned our minds to the end of all things. The glorious return of the Son of Man to judge the living and the dead. Our Lord is coming again with His recompense in His hand. And the way we live now should look like that's true. The devil and our worldly cares would lull us to sleep like a baby's rocker. And so last week we heard Jesus Himself issue an imperative, a command. Stay awake, Jesus said, as you look for My return. Last week we were at the end. This week we return to the beginning. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Mark puts it. Last week we remembered Jesus' second coming. This week we remember Jesus' first. And just like there was a command last week, stay awake, so also there is a command this week, one which still applies to us, prepare ye the way of the Lord. I just have to say the ye, it's just, it rolls off the tongue. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Because the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, His first coming, comes at the end of another long period of longing. And that's why Mark, before he really gets to Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, he has to go back. That's where the Gospel of Mark starts. And that's why Mark immediately pivots to something that he doesn't usually do. He quotes Scripture. Now usually Mark is, is, the, is all about action. He wants you to see what Jesus did and then to act. He commends action in response. But, but he needs you to see here at the beginning of his gospel precisely who it is that's doing all of these amazing things. And so he quotes Scripture. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare, the way, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. And Mark prefaces this quotation by saying, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. But what he's actually done is he's woven together three different texts from three different prophets which culminate in the stirring call of Isaiah. And the first is from the prophet Malachi. Behold... I send my messenger before your face. And that's where we need to start. So you know the Old Testament, at least as we've received it, it ends with which prophet? Malachi. Malachi. It ends with Malachi. It's the last book there in your Old Testament. And it's a fitting book to close the Old Testament because Malachi was the last prophet chronologically sent to Israel before Jesus came. 
He's sent after Israel has returned from, to the promised land, after Israel has been freed from the long exile to Babylon. And they've rebuilt Jerusalem at this point. They've rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed. So things should be looking up, right? Things are looking up for Israel at this time. No, God's people are not all right. They're in the land, yes. But they're still governed by oppressing nations. And there's enemies at their borders all the time. And life is hard. And this is hardly the messianic age that they came to expect when they were in exile. They were longing so hard for the return to the land. And they finally get there. And it's a letdown. What's the deal? The problem is that even the exile, this cataclysm for Israel, Babylon destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple, the people cast away from their homeland, even this long and brutal chastening by God was not enough to wholly cleanse Israel's heart. God has now miraculously restored them to the promised land. He's led them in rebuilding the temple. And He's given them His his instruction, His law. He sent them His prophets. And still, Malachi has to say, still Israel's priests are taking bribes. And their judges are not administering justice. And, And the people, the people are... Everyone is marrying foreign brides who are leading their hearts away into the worship of foreign gods like happened to Solomon. So how could it be an age of blessing from the Lord when the hearts of God's people are far from Him? And so God sends Malachi. My messenger is what his name means. And he sends him to preach a word of rebuke, a call to repentance, and a sure promise of judgment. But as God often does, always does perhaps, His word of judgment also contains a word of mercy and promise. There's these little bits of relief in the burden that Malachi lays on Israel. And this is his promise that God preaches through Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of armies, the Lord of hosts. God renews his promise. I'm still coming. Still to renew my people. I am coming into my temple where you will meet with me and feast with me and from which I shall reign forever in my glory. And then God specifies before that happens, before I come back in my glory, you're going to hear from a messenger. I'm going to send someone to announce that all of this is about to happen. And then at the very end of Malachi's prophecy, God gets even more specific. These are the words that close our Old Testament. The last things you read before you hit that little blank page in the Bible. It says the New Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The end. Question mark. That's the end of the Old Testament. Elijah will come, prophesies Malachi, and then the day of the Lord will arrive. And after Malachi delivers these words to Israel, God falls silent for 400 years. Now he hasn't abandoned his people or his world. He still, they still have the words that he has spoken in the law and the prophets. But yet Yahweh said he, his judgment was going to fall against Israel's disobedient heart. 
And so that judgment is God's silence. They don't hear from a prophet from God for 400 years. Wars rage in those 400 years. And world powers get shaken up. And the people of Israel are carved up and dealt out. But God waits. 400 years they're waiting on God's messenger to appear. And to announce God's triumphal entry. And then after quoting that, Mark hits us with Isaiah 40. With that impossibly beautiful word of comfort and coming. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. Isaiah is is prophesying there in Isaiah 40 about the same day of the Lord that Malachi was talking about. The day of His coming in power and glory to judge the world and to vindicate His people and to be their shepherd forever. Isaiah gives us this glimpse of the end of all things. And in the midst of that vision, we hear a voice. A voice whose speaker we tantalizingly cannot see. And the voice cries what? In the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall be made level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here is the promised voice of a messenger promising like Malachi that the Lord is coming. He will come in power and great glory and He's coming to set all things to rights. And it's a promise that comes to those like Israel after the exodus, like Israel after the exile. It's a promise that comes to those who are in the wilderness. This promise hovers over Israel. All those long years of wandering, those long 400 years of silence, the Word of the Lord has spoken. There will be a messenger. There will be a day. But when? And only then does Mark drop us into the action of the present moment. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness. John, wild-eyed, who is dressed in camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. Bible trivia time. Who is described in 2 Kings 1.8 as wearing, quote, a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist? It's an open book. You can check. It's not... Louder? Elijah. Yes, it is Elijah. And remind me, Whom did Malachi prophesy would come to announce the great and awesome day of the Lord? Yeah. Mark is already drawing our attention to something that Jesus is soon to make explicit. Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. John's arrival with just a few choice details is enough to tell us that the game is finally afoot. That the day of the Lord is arriving. And we get these weird details too about his diet. John is eating locusts and wild honey. Throughout Israel's history, we've seen swarms of locusts sent as judgment. Right? First against Egypt. But then later against Israel herself. 
These swarms of locusts arrive and they consume the life of a place and a people. We get, we get these vivid images like in Joel 1-3. What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. The bite of the locust is the sting of judgment. But here is John... God's messenger, and he bites back. He consumes the consuming insects. Here is a sign that the judgment is coming to an end, or at least to its culmination. He's also eating honey, honey which for so long has been a sign of the sweetness and the gratuitous provision of the promised land. Remember the land that flows with milk and honey. But this is wild honey. Honey which has not been cultivated straight from the wild hive into the body of this prophet. Honey is the sign of the promised land, but John is eating it out here in the wilderness. Is Mark not signifying that this kingdom that is coming will include in it some element of wildness? Something that hasn't been there before. Something unexpected. Will it include even the Gentiles? We see the new Elijah. John the baptizer, he dips his locusts into wild honey. He's clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt. And we sense immediately that God's advent, God's coming, the day of the Lord is imminent. Something new and unfamiliar is about to happen. And this locust eating, honey dipping, new Elijah prophet is prophesying where? Where is he? He's in the wilderness, the very place Isaiah's voice said to prepare the way of the Lord. And let's not skip over, it's very beautiful and literary, but it's also a literal fulfillment that Mark is drawing our attention to. God said some hundreds of years ago that there would be a voice crying in the wilderness. God said 400 years ago that Elijah would come and announce the arrival of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And here it is. Here's Elijah. Here is his wilderness. And here is the voice saying, repent. Now, we are Americans. I I assume most of us are Americans in here. And we take after John Muir. And so when we hear wilderness, we tend to get a little romantic. We think of lush, unspoiled forests. We think of giant vistas. And when we think of running a highway through the wilderness, that sounds like a travesty to us. You can't do that. We have protected wilderness. It sounds more like a tragedy than a divine command. But that's not the wilderness of the Bible. Our wilderness, what we have in mind, is not the wilderness of the Bible. It's not the wilderness of John. The biblical wilderness is the place of barrenness, of emptiness, a place that is hostile to life. In the wilderness outside Jerusalem, where John is, it's a harsh land, practically empty of vegetation. There is no green to ease the hard, bright view of the desert country. But it goes even deeper than that. Wilderness is the place of judgment, the place of wandering. Think of Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. It's a place of wandering and barrenness and judgment. And yet that's not all that wilderness is in Scripture. God has actually built up quite a reputation for himself as someone who can do something about barrenness. The barren land, the wilderness, this is precisely where God plants the seeds of a new work for new life. 
In Hosea 2, God promises to restore his relationship with Israel, his bride, and to do so in the wilderness. Therefore, behold, God says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. The wilderness is this unformed, unfilled land that precedes God's new creation. So that Isaiah, just a chapter later in 41.18, he can prophesy, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make in the wilderness, God says, I will make in the wilderness a pool of water. A dry land, and in the dry land springs of water, I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. God puts His people in the wilderness, yes, in judgment, but also to show them the works of His mighty hand. To bring life in a place where only God can bring life. And so it is fitting that it's in the wilderness that John's voice begins to speak and to cry, comfort is coming, prepare the way. John is in the wilderness preaching. And scores of people, all Judea and Jerusalem, were coming out to this desolate place. And in this desolate place they must have seen a proper, a fitting place. A place that fit the state of their weary souls. It's been 400 years. And Israel was a desolate people in desolate times. No doubt, many of them could pray with sharp yearning the words of Psalm 85 that we just prayed this morning. A psalm which says to God, Look, Lord, You have restored the fortunes of Jacob. Our fathers have told us about this. You've done it, Lord. Now restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away Your indignation toward us. Will You be angry at us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, O Lord, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. That's the cry of Israel's heart at this time. And by this time in Israel, there were groups. There were these groups forming all around. Groups of fervent Jews who were ready to do something. They were ready to force Yahweh's hand. We've had enough of this waiting. Do something, God. And some of these groups get downright apocalyptic. They're disgusted and enraged with the compromised Israelites. They saw cities like Jerusalem as these hives of idolatry. And they longed for the intense purity which Israel had in her earliest days. The days in the desert when all she had was Yahweh, her God, to provide the morning manna and the evening quail. And so there are groups like the Essenes, were one of these peoples. Groups like the Essenes, and they moved out of the cities into the wilderness. And they cited passages like Isaiah 40 as their justification. This is from the community rule of a group that gathered at Qumran in the wilderness. Our members shall separate from the habitation of ungodly men. They shall go into the wilderness to prepare the way of Him. As it is written, prepare in the wilderness the way of our God. Make straight in the desert a pathway of our God. They moved out to the wilderness to live lives of intense, uncompromising asceticism. Lives that would make us look like us and would make medieval monks look lax. They strained. They, they fasted. They, they eschewed all comforts of this life because they thought that if this self-designated remnant, if they could just live purely enough, if they could live in absolute purity, they would thereby persuade Yahweh 
to kickstart the day, the day of his coming and return. And they had the theologically correct location. They got it. They're supposed to be in the wilderness, but they had the wrong method. They were in the right place, but doing it in the wrong way because our strivings do not persuade God to act. God acts, and we are thereby persuaded to strive. See, John the baptizer is like the Essenes in the wilderness preaching. He's in the wilderness living an ascetic life. He's in the wilderness preaching repentance, but he has the order right. The repentance to which John is exhorting Israel is not the precondition of the kingdom of God coming. His exhortation isn't like these other groups. He's not saying, all right, if we can just get enough people out here baptized and repenting, then God will come and hear us. No. John's message from God is quite the opposite. He says the kingdom is at hand. It's coming right now, whether you like it or not. God is coming to bring his people out of exile. He's got a new exodus planned and a new Jerusalem in mind. God is already at work. He's unflagging. He's unstoppable. You cannot stop him. Are you ready? Because right now, you're shut out of the kingdom. God is going to turn you away at the gate. Because whether you thought so or not, you've made himself your enemy, his enemy. He's coming. But He will receive you. He'll receive you gladly if you will but turn from your sin and turn to Him. He is ready to pour even His Spirit upon you. And this is the beginning of the Gospel that Mark is proclaiming that the Lord, the Messiah, the King has come. In the tradition of Christian iconography, the sacred pictures that Christians have painted for a long time, you may have noticed that Jesus acts like a center of gravity in them. Everyone who's in a picture with Jesus always ends up leaning towards him. If you look at an image of Mary and Jesus, you'll see that Mary is always craning her neck toward Jesus or, or ushering her hand towards Jesus. And it's not just because she's a doting mother. In icons, which try to picture the world as it truly is and should be, everyone is, is tilting towards Jesus because they're reverencing Jesus. They're showing the honor that is due to the King of Kings, the Mighty One of Israel. But whenever John the Baptist shows up in an icon, bowing is not enough. He does instead the very thing that you're told not to do as a child. He snaps out a finger and he points. He points right at Jesus. Because he doesn't just want you to reverence Jesus. Or he doesn't just want to reverence Jesus. He doesn't just want to give Jesus honor. He wants you to do it. And those icons of John the Baptist, he's staring out at you and he's pointing at Jesus and he's saying, here he is. The Lord who has come, the Mighty One of Isaiah 40 has come. After, after me, John says, comes He who is mightier than I. And this is from a mighty Elijah-like prophet. And he might have Isaiah 40 in mind, which we already heard. Verse 10, which says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. The Mighty One whom Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40 is Jesus the promised Messiah who has arrived at last. John is sent to proclaim that the day of the Lord has arrived and it will arrive again. And so today we too are commanded, prepare ye the way of the Lord. 
How should we respond? How should people respond to the announcement that God is coming? That He's returning to His people and His world with judgment in His hand? What can you do exactly to prepare the way for such an awful and fearsome coming? One which utterly exceeds your power and even your understanding. What can you do to prepare the way of the Lord? What can we do to prepare the way of the Lord? The message of John is simple. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. It's the same message that Peter is going to preach at Pentecost. The Lord has come. His glory has been revealed. And what should you do? Repent and be baptized. Turn from your wickedness and live. It's what Jesus Himself, He preaches what John preaches. And just a few verses later in Mark, Jesus pops onto the scene after His baptism, after His temptation. He begins to preach and say, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. How do we prepare the way of the Lord? We repent. What does it mean to repent? It means at least to hear God's Word to you and to me. That we have turned our hearts from God. And to hear His command, His invitation, His beckoning, turn again. Turn back to Me. Hear that God Himself is calling us to turn back to Him. For if we do, if we take that little little motion of turning, if we look just over our shoulder, we will see that He has already drawn so near to us. And He has brought His kingdom with Him. And so as for John, as for all Judea and Jerusalem, so it is for us. Repentance begins with confession of sin. All Israel, all Jerusalem were coming to Him for a baptism of repentance. They were confessing their sins in the Jordan. Confessing their individual sins. Confessing our individual sins, certainly. But also our sins as a people. Confessing before God the ways in which we have through our own fault in thought and word and deed drawn far from God. The ways in which we have allowed our hearts to turn aimlessly away from Him. The ways in which we have offended against His holy law and offended His holy majesty. And we pour out our sins before God like a weird sort of offering. That's where repentance begins. And then something incredible happens. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the Anglican tradition, we continue the long Christian tradition of the rite of confession. We don't require it in the way of the Roman or Eastern church. We don't make it a condition of salvation because the Bible doesn't. And yet the Bible very much does require the confession of sins. That's why we pray together a general confession every Sunday. We're going to do it in a couple minutes. And if we confess truly, we will receive God's absolution, the forgiveness of our sins. But sometimes, and this is the little exhortation bit at the end of this sermon, sometimes we require specific confession. We need not only to join our hearts in the general confession, we need to come before someone else, as James exhorts us to do. To be in the presence of another believer before our common God and to confess our sins. Because we need to hear God's personal word of absolution and strengthening. And sometimes we need pastoral counsel. 
We need to hear not just that our sins are forgiven, but that we are, we are joined in the struggle against sin by others, by our brothers and sisters, by our priests, to hear counsel as to how we might resist our sin. And that's not an easy thing. It's not easy to confess your sins. It may well be the hardest thing in the world to recognize that your soul is a, is a wilderness. It is barren of itself. It does not have life in it. And to confess that before God. And to ask Him to do what only He can do. To bring life into the wilderness of our souls. And so we have, built in and ready, in our Book of Common Prayer, the right for the reconciliation of penitence. It's on page 223 of that little red book if you ever want to check it out. There's never a bad time to confess your sins. To prepare the way of the Lord. But Advent and Lent traditionally are the times that are especially set aside to make a confession. And so let me exhort you this morning to confess your sins, to begin your repentance, your continual repentance by confessing your sins. As as the old phrase puts it, all may, some should, none must when it comes to these sorts of rites, like, like the particular confession of sins before a priest. All may do it. Some should do it. None must. We're not going to require it. I'm not going to say that unless you confess your sins to me or Father Michael, God's not going to forgive you. I don't have that power. God has that power, right? And yet, let me emphasize of those three, all may, some should, none must. Let me emphasize this morning, some should. Some should in this room. Confess your sins. Some here this morning should take this Advent season to come see me or Father Michael in these next few weeks. And submit yourself to the rite of of confession. To pour out your sins before Almighty God. Bring your sins into the light. And in so doing, hear the word of the Lord who has come and is coming again to pronounce His word of judgment, yes, but also His word of mercy. To hear that the Christ has come, has drawn near to shepherd you, to claim you as one of His own flock. And to, in our forgiveness, catch a glimpse of the promised glory of the Lord, which shall be revealed and has been revealed and shall be revealed again. Just don't do nothing to the message of John to prepare the way of the Lord, to repent and believe the gospel. Again and again, we are commended and commanded to turn our wandering hearts back to God, to turn again, to remember your first love, to be baptized if you have not yet been baptized, and to repent And in our repentance, we are preparing the way of the Lord. We are receiving the Lord who has come and is coming again. This is the beginning of the gospel. That He has come and He is coming again. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Amen.